Welcome to the Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Our mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. My name is James, and I'm going to be your host today. Today, I'm uh, joined by... Matt Nelson, the uh, Chief Technical Officer of Bespin and a Lieutenant Colonel in the Reserves. Um, Matt, welcome to the show. Yeah, excited to be here. This is great. Heck yeah. So um, I called you a thought innovator earlier and you laughed, but it's true. Uh, <laughs> what is your, uh, what's your history? Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so, you know, I spent 15 years active duty and then I got out and did three years inside of commercial industry. You know, at Rise Eight as a COO and a startup, you know, person that was helping grow a business from two people to seventy-five people. And now I just got back into government civil service as an NHO four supporting Bestman. But you know, like all of that kind of ties back into what I feel is my passion, which is bringing innovation to life. And I love Dan Ward's kind of definition of innovation. It's change with impact. So you got to be able to change, but then that change has to really drive an impact and hopefully in a positive way. And that's what keeps me going is like, how can we bring innovation into the hands of the people that need it most? And for me, that's, you know, our warfighters. It's pretty great. That's awesome. I actually, I really like that quote. I had not heard that for the record, uh, because I, we have talked about disruption a lot in the past and that always, uh, I guess there's a part of me that kind of got triggered by that because that seems there's, there's a sense of conflict in that. Um, and then, and then disrupting obviously means, you know, interrupting and stopping something, uh, that doesn't quite capture what you're always trying to do, but change with impact is a little bit more, uh, a nicer, you know, maybe more integrated approach. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, to also quote Dan Ward, who's one of my mentors is, you really got to work with people and not to people because disruption is like, I'm just going to like have this innovation and just push, push it down their throat and really just here it is. I'm going to give this to you. But if you bring those people along with you in that journey, it's not disruption in, it, anymore. It's more collaboration and getting people on the same page because at the end of the day, you can't be like, a shark and just do it all on your own. You really need to bring a team of teams together and do it together or it's never going to succeed because, you know, the DOD is a massive bureaucracy. There's a lot of antibodies that could grow in that bureaucracy if you're not careful. When, when Matt brings up, uh, you know, innovation in in the DOD and trying to work with people, uh, he's, he's, Someone that I would believe when he talks about that, he's got a lot of experience. Could you speak to uh, a little bit more of your your background in innovation and, you know, what what brought you to that current mindset that you have of working with people? Yeah, I'd love to. So I would say like my innovation journey started uh, at Education One Industry. Um, I did an EWE assignment in Seattle, Washington, working for Boeing. And the things I learned there, and I was on a factory floor, really just theory, constraints, principles around visualizing your work, identifying the bottleneck, using a Kanban board to uh, basically show flow in through a system because, you know, on a factory floor that's producing P9 jets, you really have to kind of 
have that nailed down and on, you know, and on chords when things are broken and all of those like really smart things uh, that I saw and observed as an EWI officer, I wanted to bring back to my next job, which happened to be the targeting and geoint program manager. And within there, I quickly saw that the bottleneck was getting software out to the field. And I just got lucky to be at the right place at the right time where that targeting and geoint program office became the basically the seed that was planted that turned into Kessel Run. And that whole journey really got, you know, I guess myself just really sold in hook, line and sinker on, hey, this is the way to work. This is how we can do it. We can introduce, you know, modern practices from theory of constraints and agile software delivery and DevSecOps to eliminate that bottleneck of software just sitting on the shelf or users waiting, you know, years for an update to happen. So that's what really got me going. And, you know, I could go on and on about the Kessel Run journey and, you know, all the lessons learned there as well. Well, I'd, I'd say let's let's start on that. Um, so for those of you unfamiliar with Kessel Run and Bestman for that matter, uh, these are software factories. What is a software factory responsible for in kind of today's parlance? Yeah, and I would love to have like a common definition of what a software factory is, but the one that doesn't exist right now. So I would think Matt Nelson's definition of what a software factory is, it's uh, the ability to continuously deliver software into the field. And, you know, there's a value line there. And the, the software, software factory has to control the things below the value line and also produce articles or, you know, software applications that are above the value line into the warfighter. So that value line is the dev environment, your pipelines, your, you know, build tools, your test tools, your scanning tools, all of those things that like used to take people months and weeks and manual steps to complete now can happen in an automated way, just like, you know, going through a, a pipeline in a, or, a, you know, assembly line in a factory uh, is kind of the concept. It almost seems draconian, though, of like, hey, this is just a factory. I think it's it's even more than that. It's really just it's almost like this is a culture. This is a way that we think about uh, the principles around agile delivery and really like trying to delight the user in establishing continuous delivery so you can learn and always iterate on your capabilities. So that's how I would define a software factory. And, you know, back in 2016, 2017 timeframe, that term never existed. And we basically, we didn't come in, you know, at targeting a GON and then partnering with the AOC to say, hey, we're going to build a software factory. What we really wanted to do was follow the principles of the continuous uh, manifesto and really just say, uh, hey, let's, let's, or the DevSecOps manifesto or the DevOps manifesto, I mean, let's just establish continuous delivery and have that audacity to do that. And we learned that, hey, from an innovation perspective, there's a lot of people and processes and technologies that you're going to have to bring to bear to, you know, create that flywheel, which is continuous delivery. So one of the things I'd like to tease out uh, in the course of this conversation um, is the kind of complexity of the environment that you're describing, the ecosystem of continuous delivery. Uh, but 
it, it's also important. I'm going to, I'm probably going to keep asking you to define things, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so DevSecOps and DevOps, what is it? Why is it important? Yes. Metaphors so, are okay. Cause sometimes you have to use metaphors for these things. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I would say, you know, a lot of people get this notion of like DevOps is you bring your developer team and your engineers and you sit them next to your operators or your warfighters and that's DevOps. And that's not the definition that the community outside of the DOD uses. DevOps is really, hey, I am going to build this software capability and I'm going to work with my operations team, which is the IT infrastructure team and in the DevSecOps uh, cases, like our security accreditation team to really create this feedback mechanism of, hey, I want to bake in all of those constraints that you are concerned with up front so we don't have to bolt them on in the back end from a testing perspective, from a security compliance perspective, from a day two ops piece of like, hey, it worked on my machine. Now when I get it into production, it doesn't work because you didn't have those conversations of what does my production environment look like? That's really what DevSecOps is about. And like, I think a good metric is for that is like how many times are your developers having beers with your operations team or having beers with your security team? Because those conversations that naturally happen because of that create the culture of what it means to operate in a true DevSecOps fashion. It's having empathy for your security team and learning from them and baking that in same with your operations team and you can't do that with just documentation and checklists and all of that it has to be uh, the people and the culture and the rituals of always you know learning from each other and working with not to uh, as that example sure so um DevSecOps, development security, and operations, uh, there are a, a lot of situations where those three kind of areas of responsibility are kind of in gentle conflict with each other. There's the tension there. Uh, the developer makes a change, and, and the security team has to be abreast of that of that change, um, and it might affect downstream operation, you know, the ops team with that. Uh, so that's why that kind of cooperation uh, is important. And to the point of continuous delivery, then um, with things that are not software, it's a lot easier um, to visualize kind of a, a chain, like a supply chain of discrete, distinct events that happen in a row to produce some kind of value stream, right? Um, but in the world of, of software, you talk about this continuous value stream, which is like a bunch of very, very quick chains, you know, uh, you deploy software and then you realize you need to change something that change maybe needs to get done overnight. Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, the, one of the beauties of continuous delivery is small batch sizes, right? Like take, for example, if you were wanting to send out 500 wedding invitations and you're, you know, folding up your invitations, putting it in an envelope, writing the address and putting the stamp on them. And, you know, you, you bundle up to 500 of them. And then you realize okay. I, uh, <laughs> I like had a mistake. My wife's, my soon to be bride's name is misspelled in these invitations. And because you bundled up all of that work together, that's a massive amount of rework and a massive amount of change that's going to happen. 
And it's also a lot of churn inside of that ecosystem. I'm giving this example because if you just had smaller batches and you just, you delivered, you, you made two and then you did a QC check on those two and you're like, oh, I just have a spelling error in this. Let me fix the other 498 so I can continuously get this out. So that is in essence, one of the fundamental principles of continuous delivery is those small batch sizes building those, getting those out, measuring to see what, what, you know, the effect of that was and learning from that. And you've got to have strong principles in place to do that. And you can't always just bundle up your work and expect that it's going to go correctly the first time. I like that metaphor. I'm going to pull on that just a little bit more. Um, So imagine that your wedding invitations, you open it up and it's actually like a pop-up, like a storybook kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have one team working on the kind of illustrations that are, that eventually pop up out of this, this book. You have another team with the text, another team with like the typeface and whatever pictures are present and stuff like that. So when you have that small batch, uh, you get to see kind of continuously as you're developing out what this end product should look like. Maybe your teams come together and you realize that the text is accidentally, you know, over an illustration or something like that. That that's kind of getting more towards the complexity of how things integrate and how it's important to be continuously like monitoring and changing these things with the small batches. It's rich. It's complicated. It's you know, good metaphor, but it's there's a lot. <laughs> but the beauty of software is right. Like if you architected your system in a way, like this wedding invitation system is you should be able to deploy individual components of that invitation without having to, you know, integrate every single time with the entire, you know, team or this putting the the whole thing together, the whole thing together at once. What that means is, is like you have independently testable, independently fieldable components of your software and doing and writing those integration tests when they're ready to be written. So you're always double checking and learning, you know, as components versus, you know, as, you know, an entire entity, which really creates a lot of complexity and sprawl and a lot of coordination. So that's another beauty of, you know, this whole DevSecOps, you know, Uh, push is, hey, how can we establish independently fieldable and independently testable mechanisms and software? Because the nature of it being digital and being able to test, you know, you know, in in an integration environment, you're allowed to do that uh, versus like from a hardware perspective where you actually have to physically touch and, you know, produce things together. Yeah. And produce things. Yep. 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 Um, Did you get that metaphor from somewhere? Is that going to be the new DevSecOps metaphor, the invitation? I don't know about that. We'll see. (laughs) Okay. Um, So that is, you know, that's that's Matt Nelson, CTO of Bespin, today on DevSecOps. What was uh, what was your perspective, kind of closer to that early Kessel Run, more nebulous? What it was as an organization? You know, you have this kind of uh, thing that you're trying to get after that's do with GON, but you don't have this uh, perfect image of what the responsibilities, whose responsibilities are where and, and you know, how that's going to actually shake out. Talk, uh, talk me through some of the kind of lessons learned and, and the good things and the bad things that happened that led you to that current understanding of DevSecOps. Yeah, so a good microcosm of this is an application called the Joint Targeting Toolbox. This application, 
you know, wasn't independently tested, testable and independently fieldable. It was part of an, a larger software baseline. So in theory, that's great because then you have one baseline that you're managing and it's easy to kind of understand and get your head around that. But in practice, there's a lot of like bottlenecks in that process. So the story around JTT was we would build it and let's just say G JTT 5.1 was ready to go. And we built it. We got all the new features in that the users requested. We tested it in our local environment and it worked. But then it has to get fielded onto Geeks J, which is another system inside of like the overall enterprise. And it's got to get tested and fielded and make sure it integrates well with Geeks J. Um, so it's highly dependent. It's not independently uh, fieldable there. It's highly dependent on Geeks J. And they have their own uh, testing timelines and integration points, and it's all being done manually. So you kind of get onto that release train. And if you pass that and not get feedback, hey, you, you uh, couldn't integrate correctly, go back and field, and you get in that death spiral of waiting and getting fixed and waiting. Then it goes into the AOC baseline, which on top of that is its own timeline and own processes for being able to do uh, fielding and integration because you got to first test it, you know, at your staging environment inside of, you know, at Langley Air Force Base and really learn. And then after a year of making sure that that all works and gets integrated, then it goes out into the field. And then you're actually fielding, like actually going out with a team of people, installing that onto a server in, you know, at locations all around the world. That timeline was five to seven years after something was developed. And so anything could be better than that. So like, how do you then uh, really unpack that? So how you unpack that is like, you know, bringing in things that, from that value line perspective that allow you to uh, eliminate some of those bottlenecks. So a platform, for example, is below the value line. You know, end users don't need to care if you're writing on, you know, Red Hat or Rancher or anything else. All they need to care is like you're delivering software that they love. And so with this value line perspective back to the platform is it abstracts you know, the the complexity of being able to, well, it's got to work on this environment. It's got to work on this environment. It makes it, you know, multi-cloud is, is a good, you know, use case for a platform. And in the, the JTT perspective is, hey, if, what it, wouldn't it be beautiful if we could just deploy this capability and not have to rely on fielding teams and physical servers and being a part of a, you know, a you know, a weapon system baseline and just get it out to the door, out the door on a cloud infrastructure that you don't have to send a physical person to, to get it installed. And then just talk to the data that lives inside geeks J and the AOC to make it work. And so that was like the journey that I got on to kind of navigate that processes, which led to, uh, Kessel Run and all of the complexities around getting software out of this big monolith, which was which was the AOC base baseline, into components of that kill chain that were independently fieldable and independently testable. So it eliminated that seven year timeline and really pushed it down into 
when you got the application accredited and tested that first time, and we built it in a way that with automated checks and automated testing, and with our AO that says, yes, I'm confident that what you built uh, is not gonna break in production, you can go ahead and field this capability. We reduced that seven year timeline into, you know, it took us six months to get, you know, a smaller version of JTT out the door. And then we were making updates uh, weekly versus every seven years, which is, you know, a pretty drastic change. And that's not even half the story with, you know, the Kessel Run and the tanker planning tool and all the you know, headlines that you see and read on like fastcompany.com and stuff like that. But that is a, a really good example for a lot of reasons the thing that strikes me particularly is that uh that seven year timeline with handing it off and comparing against different baselines that mirrors the kind of analog process for something like hardware right that's a great example of where uh, uh policy and business practices at the enterprise or across the enterprise uh as they pertain to digital solutions really need to be fundamentally re-examined Right. You don't need to be like you said, you don't need to be mailing things back and forth um, <laughs> in seven years for that exactly. one chain. <laughs> that is absolutely obscene. Um, you said then down to six months for a major uh, like actually putting it into production um, and then you could do weekly updates. And that was done through, um, you know, a little bit of automation to make sure that things are compliant and stuff like that. That's really great. Um in in a nutshell, from there to Kessel Run um, being kind of responsible for the AOC, you know, portfolio of software efforts. You give just a quick gist of how that happened. Yeah. So, you know, at the same time, we were trying to take on the JTT challenge. Uh, it just happened to be serendipitous. I, you know, I really think the stars aligned here was. This was the time, you know, the late great Senator John McCain said, AOC program 10.2, I'm, you're getting canceled. They just went back up for a non-McCurdy breach saying, hey, we just need another $300 million more dollars, and I promise we'll get working software out the door. I know you've been waiting four years for us to get working software out the door, and I know we've spent about $500 million on a lot of strong technical design documentation and a lot of like testing out and trying to figure out this complex monolithic software baseline that is AOC 10.2. Senator McCain said, you're done. We're canceling this program. But at with the luck of fate is we still had that funding inside of our program element uh, at the AOC. What we were doing, you know, with JT or with JTT and also with DIU and the Tinker Planner tool, we basically laid down the plumbing for a smart continuous delivery pipeline that was using a platform to get out into the cloud. And we really said, hey, AOC, why don't you come along with us and go on this DevSecOps journey together? Because my little JTT program of about $12 million a year versus AOC at like $100 million a year, that really like put Kessel Run on the map. Like you no longer just a proof of concept. You are, the Air Force is making a big bet on how to do this correctly. Uh, and, you know, the thing that got us going there was a lot of things. And it's not just a thing, actually. So what we learned is you don't need, you know, deliverables of 
CDs for source code. When you stand up a dev environment and you put your source code in a repo like GitLab, it's with you from day one. And if you build with government people and partner with industry, you own that software from day one because that's how like, you know, the laws around data rights work. All of that really enabled us to own the technical baseline. And it brought people from being cubicle engineers that would just write systems engineering plans or review documents from uh, the contractor to actually being true hands-on engineers and owning the technical baseline and not just outsourcing it and thinking, it's just a black box, I hope it works. And, and that journey grew from you know one team, which was the Tinker Planner tool at DIU, to the JTT teams, to the 26 or so teams that you see within Kessel Run today. Uh, and it just kept going because we really like almost um, got drunk a little bit on continuous delivery and CI/CD pipelines. And the reason why I say we got drunk a little bit on that was because, you know, what we were trying to solve is a really complex system of systems challenge. And we were doing it at a building many monolithic applications together. There is a balance there, and you know it's not the five years, $500 million technical design approach that AOC 10.2 had, but it might not have been, hey, let's just get a bunch of applications out there that are part pieces of an overall kill chain, but really upfront defining those governance standards for API-first development and all of the things to make it a good integrated system of systems upfront. And that's one of the lessons learned with like the whole Kessel Run journey. But like, that's just one thing that we're evolving to and learning from, from a crawl, walk, run perspective. But we, we did that ourselves and we became more digitally fluent because of it. And that's what I think the beauty of Kessel Run and the beauty of software factories that, you know, have spawned out of the Kessel Run, you know, kind of concept was, hey, I want to be digitally fluent because it's actually a more rewarding and pleasant place to work than just me getting stuck behind a cubicle and reviewing contract deliverable documents and writing systems engineering plans. You don't get that same level of satisfaction of like, I just made an app go into production and I'm getting feedback from a warfighter on that capability. That is awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, there's a lot to unpack there, but I actually I want to move on to uh, to Bespin, right? Which is you currently what you do, right? So you you learned all those lessons in standing this up, um, and of course still learning lessons, right? But you brought those lessons into your current role and in, into Bespin. Um, what what is uh, what's different about Bespin? So the, the awesome thing about Bespin, and let me just take a step back and define what Bespin is for people who don't know what it is, is, you know, it is the mobile software factory for the DOD. And mobile right now inside the DOD is, we are early adopters at best. And even though like mobile really took off when the iPhone came out back in like 2012 and we're about a decade late to that game, but we're always laggards when it comes to technology, but there's 5 billion mobile devices out there in the world. So everybody has a supercomputer in their pocket. And how can we tap into that vast opportunity, which is mobile, which will be the next 
next accelerant on the battlefield for resilient basing and agile combat employment. That's just my, you know, opinion of where we need to take our concept o- operation in military. So Bestman is the uh, wants to be the thought leader in the hub of mobile software delivery with inside the Air Force. So um, that's a long-winded answer about what Bestman is. But, you know, how I'm involved in Bestman was when I got out of the military in 2020 um, to go into the commercial industry, I was became a reservist and was supporting Bestman. And I fell in love with the problem that Bestman's trying to solve with the mobile piece. But I also fell in love with the the fact that we have a hundred one Delta seven airmen that are, we're bringing along with this journey to become like the next digital age and the next, you know, generation inside the air force. It's no longer, uh, anchored on industrial age practices and processes, uh, but more like those digital, you know, native, you know, thoughts around DevSecOps. And that's what these airmen coming straight out of tech school have only been exposed to. And I'm super excited to see like what that generation is going to do and take DevSecOps and take agile delivery to the next level. It's going to be pretty powerful. There's lots of layers of force multiplication happening there with uh, what you're talking about, how many mobile devices we have. I think it's safe to assume that uh, there's about one device per airman at least <laughs> at all times, right? Um, but then also the idea of, of uh, uh, Bestman being a means to deploy to them is, is a force multiplication thing because all apps are, um, you know, generally speaking, uh, you kind of create this thing and then you can kind of use it you know, more or less anywhere and any time, as long as, you know, you're kind of within the right domain. Um, but also strengthening that one Delta seven enlisted community of, of people getting to work on, uh, different projects that touch, you know, different parts of the air force, um, and then deploy real tools for people to use. Uh, that is, that's like an inspirational thing, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And so like, and another cool thing about Bestman is we weren't built, to you know, transform a legacy program like the AOC. We were stood up to be that enterprise service for mobile. So what that really means is we are learning how to create processes and business rules and people around how to create like a really great developer team experience making sure that they can be productive on day one with web app templates and, you know, their, you know, development uh, account is created and ready to go and all their tooling and all their licenses associated with that is there and we keep the pipeline up and running. We're always continuously improving that to make sure we have the best cybersecurity posture that we can and the best testing approach that we can to make sure that these capabilities that are leaving our pipeline are work and safe uh, for our, our airmen to use. So that piece in and amongst itself didn't exist in the one Delta seven career field uh, three years ago. None of that even existed just three years ago. I mean, you know, before that, a lot of the one Delta sevens investment has the, the largest uh, one Delta seven you know, population in the entire air force. A lot of those were, they were wor- working on SharePoint apps. They were managing file servers. They were working on like making sure that uh, IT infrastructure was inventoried correctly. That's not going to move the needle in the next fight. But if we can take 
train these people to be able to be force multipliers. And if they have a problem and they know, you know, that Warfighter can use a digital component to solve it, we then have given them and equipped them with the capabilities to be able to be that force multiplier and not just treat it as a second class citizen doing inventory of IT equipment. Yeah, that makes sense. You're investing in them, right? And that probably gives them a lot of job satisfaction uh, to the point earlier about uh, then them working on projects that become real things deployed to field level units. We at Tesseract uh, absolutely get giddy when we hear uh, such a thing as things getting to operational uh, airmen. So broadly speaking, the, the factory software factory is the, the kind of metaphor that we used to describe this. And then you talk about a, a pipeline. Um, what could you explain kind of uh, the policy slash IT, you know, construct that, that is the continuous ATO and why that's important for you? Yeah, absolutely. So the continuous ATO is anchored on NIST 853 security controls. Look it up. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> read. I love it. And um, what that really means is, is there are around 700 to 900 security controls that you need to meet. And they're good, you know, good. Most of them, at least I would say, are, are good cybersecurity best practices that you need to introduce into your code base. But it's written as like an entire weapon system. So when I say weapon system in this context, it's your server rack, your networking equipment, your data management and your databases, and then also your application and your business logic and your front end uh, UI. All of that has a security control somewhere in that tech stack that is mapped back to NIST 853. And normally you build it. And when I say normally, I, I would say in the, past, in the past, yeah, you would build it and you would only focus on, I really, really want to just get like a, you know, a prototype out the door so I can, you know, start testing on it. So you're only focused on features and feature development and you're, you're building up a lot of debt because you aren't addressing some of these fundamental things that you needed to address at the very beginning. Um, and then you go into tests and you didn't write any automated tests into your software delivery process. And that's part of the pipeline is, test automation, you didn't do test driven development to, so now you have potentially hundreds of test points or test cards that you would have to manually click through on your application and verify the functionality of your uh, capability. Now you can do that automate uh, automatically. Uh, but then you're still not done after those hundred test points, you got to write that body of evidence to show your AO because it's zero trust environment. It's always been a zero trust. Well, it, we're getting better at uh, zero trust environment. But one of the things is like you shouldn't just trust the words of like, hey, I, I built it securely. You can kind of just trust me. You want that body of evidence to say I built it securely and here's how I did it. And so that's the cybersecurity accreditation process, which the when I first came into Kessel Run, I reached out to our SCAS, which is our uh, security control assessor, and said, Hey, can you give me a timeline on how long this uh, RMF process takes? And she gave me a one. The one risk, risk management framework. Exactly. Yeah. And it was 406 days. It was an average 406 days. It's like, wow. Better than seven years. Well, <laughs> and that's only one that's part seven of it. Years is like, 
we already went through 406 days of RMF. So it's really eight years at that point in time. Yeah. So let's let's be honest with ourselves. But I was like, holy cow, like there's got to be a better way because now it's going to take us 406 days to manually write these, uh, manually scan the code, find any bugs, do any vulnerabilities. And now you have the ability to do that in an automated fashion. You're inheriting a lot of your controls from accredited cloud infrastructure. So that wipes out, you know, 400, 500 of your controls. And then you're inheriting a lot of your controls from your platform, your cloud service provider services. So that wipes out a lot additional, a lot more controls that you don't have to worry about as an application developer. And then you then you can automate the rest of those controls to the maximum extent possible with scanning tools and with you know testing and with making sure you close your security chores that your uh, you know, your app security team has given you and done that in in code and in processes with them instead of waiting. So all of that is truly part of that, you know, pipeline that we're talking about, because at the end of the day, you want to get software applications out of that pipeline that you can trust. And the only way you can do that is if you bake in those pieces up front, or you're just getting prototypes out of a, out of a build process that you then have to do manually. Uh, I'm going to, if you'll humor me, I'm going to attempt another metaphor here uh, just to, just to kind of uh, get after the complexity of developing software. And I've used this before and, and maybe up to uh, interpretation, actually, maybe you'll be a good person to confirm or deny this. Uh, but I say that uh, building modern software uh, by some measures is a similar amount of complexity to, to designing and procuring IP in aircraft there's that many things working together. You're building on that many uh, thousands of man hours that they get put into these tools that then the tools get put together and become toolkits. And then you start developing with, you know, 15 different toolkits in your tech stack and they're constantly maintained. They're updated on uh, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. Um, and ultimately you're working on operating systems, which are like a whole thing of itself that have been going back uh, to the 70s or 50s, 60s. It's a titanic problem, right? Um, and, and your example of uh, uh, someone that's developing software, they want to focus on feature development. So you're trying to create a button, right, that, that does some function. That's what's driving the need for a piece of software. In the, the metaphor that you're building an airplane, imagine you're standing in an empty hangar and you're trying to add a new sensor on to that airplane without any of that other, the templating and the kind of continuous process and everything kind of pre-vetted, you're trying to design a sensor and kind of tack it on to just <laughs> the area where it would go yeah. if there was an aircraft there. <laughs> and I love that analogy, right? So like, let's unpack that analogy, right? So let's just say within software, you have to make architectural decisions up front, like, you know, what's going to be my, you know, hosting environment? Am I going to use a platform? What's going to be my network? That is similar to the fuselage and the wiring and the air ducting of the aircraft. That's your architectural decisions. So then you have the scaffolding of, in, you know, our analogy of the aircraft. You have basically the wiring and the fuselage all ready to go. You have that with, you know, your CICD pipeline and your dev environment. All of that is, you know, at your fingertips on day one. But you're still not at features at that point in time. Now you need to understand, okay, 
what happens when I put this sensor on? What is it going to do when I integrate that into the circuit circuitry of the aircraft? So I can either do a manual test of like how that is going to have any static issues with integration on other pieces of equipment, which looks like kind of plugging it in and then like taking a multimeter into different spots exactly. <laughs> and literally yeah. just like checking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but you can do that automatically with test driven development of like, we expect it to do this and then we're going to scan it through our pipeline to make sure it worked. And then we're also going to check for other things from a, you, you screwed it on rightly from a security, it's safety of issue and being able to release. So like, I really do think like you can unpack that analogy all the way down into features because you want to everything on like, the value line proposition, in this case, the fuselage, the wiring, the HVAC equipment on the aircraft, that's all below the value line uh, from a software perspective because the value is what you're going to be doing with that. Like what is, you know, a feature of the aircraft? It could be like, hey, we want to put this laser on it or whatever. And that's the feature that you want to really drive to and make delight the users. The users don't care that you have beautiful wiring below uh, underneath like the skin of the aircraft but you know architects do yep yep that actually uh that brings the value line that concept home for me thinking about that right um but okay well i apologize for uh that was a lot of tech talk in a row there but i hope (laughs) yeah we didn't lose anybody yeah Yeah. it's okay um it's very very good to hear and 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 kind of like i alluded to earlier you're kind of the right person or one of the right people to talk about um uh, talk to this you know as far as the dod space because i feel like we would be uh we'd be missing out if we didn't at least mention why we're face-to-face here right now. Uh, we're in Austin, Texas. Um, Matt invited myself and uh, Tech Sergeant Costi, Dan Costi from the Tesseract team uh, to come to a, a software co- coalition. Um, real quick, why, why did we do this? Yeah. Why does the coalition exist and why did you invite us? I would say the software factory movement when it got off the ground had a bunch of great white sharks inside of that ecosystem. They are strong. They are powerful uh, personalities that could really just like get stuff done through sheer tenacity. And that got us to a great place. But with inside of the DOD, you don't need to become a great white shark to be the king of the ocean because great white sharks aren't a team player. They're not, you know, uh, they're isolated creatures and with inside of the coalition, we need to pivot from being great white sharks to orca whales, right? Orca whales are actually the true Kings of the ocean, in my opinion, because, and they don't do it because they have the tenacity and the strength and the gusto to do it all by themselves. They're a pod of organizations that come together through intelligence and networking to be able to be on the top of the food chain. And that's, what I think the coalition is all about is like, how can we bring kings of the ocean, orca whales together to create a pod to achieve amazing results that we couldn't do by ourselves? We brought in the Aussies, we brought in the Brits, we brought in the Canadians, we brought in Wavelength, we brought in Platform One, we brought in Army Software Factory, we brought in Kessel Run. And all of us shared 
conversations around, hey, how are you doing continuous continuous monitoring? Oh, you you do that? Can I can I leverage that capability for my my problem set? How are you doing talent management? Oh, you have like a skills matrix? Can I leverage that for my problem set? Like that in the spirit of open source, that is basically the conversations that this coalition is having. And you know, the other true thing is because we're now, you know, a family of Oracle whales in this analogy, we have a sh- much stronger voice than we could if we were just, you know, solitary great white sharks swimming in the ocean. I think you have a, uh, a there's no logo for the coalition, right? No, I don't think so. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> Might be one now. <laughs> All right. Um, well, that's pretty awesome. A lot of a lot of great information, and I know that we could go on for a long time. Uh, but I'd like to wrap up with uh, just a couple kind of feel goody questions. What's your favorite part about you know working in the Air Force, both as uniform member but also as a civil servant? It's the relationships that you get to meet uh, in the working in the Air Force. You know, one thing I didn't like about being a contractor was you kind of get this weird feeling of weird slimy contractor and like the relationships because of that aren't as tight as you could that they could be. And one thing, you know, as a person coming from industry back into the government, I don't want to have that feeling with my industry partners. I want to create that psychological safety with them that they don't feel like a slimy partner and they feel like a true ally in this fight because they are. Uh, and you get to create those relationships. And it's just, you know, over time, like hopefully that relationship building that I'm going to invest in, like, you know, with you guys and with Platform One and with everything is really just going to be amazing. And I think it's just much easier to do uh, inside the government than outside looking in. And that's one of the things that I like about the government versus, you know, being an industry partner. That's awesome. Yeah. Matt, thanks for joining me on the show. Yeah, dude. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Tesseract Podcast. This show is how I started to learn about enterprise-level strategy and the innovation ecosystem within the Air Force, and I hope we passed along some learning to you with this episode. If you'd like to engage with our team, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseract.af.mil.